Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. On this episode, well, with the upcoming holidays here, you know, Mother's Day and Father's Day, we figured it would be time to stop and take a moment and think of things for parents. So today we're going to explore two recipes. We're going to start with my good friend Tiffany Ashrafi talking about a beer well, that helps mothers when mothers are mothering. And then Denny and I are going to sit down and we're going to talk about, well, a recipe that for fathers to have when they need to father. So why don't you sit back? We'll get started on this in just a moment. But first, a message from our sponsor, Brewers Publications. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. And our first recipe for the day is going to come from my good friend, Tiffany. Tiffany, why don't you say hi to everybody? Hi, everybody. Tiff, why don't you tell everybody how you got involved into the whole beer thing? Sure. So I've actually been brewing for about seven years as an adult, but I actually started when I was 10 with my parents. Being from upstate New York, there's not much to do in the winter, so I was their little bottling helper, and I just needed a... A hobby once I moved here to LA and beer was it. I see. So you grew up right. Yes. <laughs> Parents of the world who are listening to this special episode, remember, get them started young and they'll grow up to be outstanding people. <laughs> and you you not only did brewing, but you also worked in the beer industry as well. I did. I dabbled a little bit um, in the corporate side of beer. It was really fun for a while, you know, drinking beer every day, going to different bars and bottle shops and sampling Um the only side I didn't really like too much was kind of the sketchy, you know, wheeling and dealing part. Hmm. But again, like just talking about beer all day was, it won me over. So it was cool. What's your favorite style of beer? Right now, I would say, well, not this instant, but before I got pregnant, <laughs> probably sours just because they're so, they can be so crazy and they can have fruit or they can be super sour or they can be you know, burnt tire, or it's just like always a big surprise of what it's going to be like. No whammies, no whammies. What sort of beer am I going to get? (laughs) (laughs) What do you get out of doing the whole brewing thing? Well, it's definitely a fun hobby for my husband and I, and I actually taught him how to brew. He was a total wino before and only drank Guinness on occasion. Um, So that was kind of cool to teach a, a dude how to brew. And he just takes so much pride in it. He takes care of our kegging system, and he asks me for advice on 
you know, what we should brew and what goes into it. So it's an, an, an more of an educational thing that I like about it. And, of course, meeting all of my Maltose Falcons buddies and, you know, drinking with you guys. So. The Maltose Falcons are great, except for there's always that one guy who has to talk in every meeting. <laughs> I think I know who that is. Yeah. So we're talking today because this is what I'm billing as our Parents' Day podcast. And I know a lot of times when we're out there, you, know, you look online and you'll see people saying, well, you know, my child's about to be born and I want to brew a beer, you know, that I can drink with my child later, you know, when they become of age. And, you know, inevitably it's like dudes who are out there doing that. And by the way, dudes who are out there doing that, wait for the second half of the show. We're going to talk about that. But I wanted to talk to you because you have a flip on that whole idea of wanting to make a beer around the whole birth of a child. Right. Let's dive into it because it's a little bit different. Okay. So I formulated what I call a booby beer. What inspired me was one of my girlfriends made these most amazing lactation cookies. And I'm like, oh my God, I could totally take all of those ingredients that she put in there that help milk production and put it in a beer because I've missed beer so much for the past eight months. And I created a recipe around a porter and I put oats in it, um, flaxseed, fenugreek, um, figs, just kind of made it like its own little cookie beer. Mm-hmm. It came out to under 3%, which was recommended by my doctor. I asked permission first. And it's delicious. I also put lactose in it, too, which makes it on the sweet side. It also ties it into the history that this is not the first time that we've ever heard of the idea of beer for new mothers and, you know, production of milk. I mean, after all, that's milk stout. Yeah. I know that you were referencing part of that history, but can you tell us about, like, all these different ingredients that you're putting in there? You know, like, what's the impact? Like, how did you discover that these were things that were good for milk production? Sure. I did a little bit of research and just Googled recommended foods that enhance milk production. Mm -hmm. And I came up with an article that had 25 different um, ingredients. And some were probably just best for eating, like salmon, asparagus, or garlic, which I've never put in beer. You might, but I wouldn't. (laughs) So, And I also found other ones like, which is going to be in my next beer, brown rice, apricots, almonds, sweet potato, and unripe papaya. And all of these are used best as organic. um, So additional lead doesn't end up in the milk. But the ones that I went with for this particular beer, they really boost lactation hormones. Mm-hmm. And that would be oats, um, which I put in half steel cut and half milled. Um, barley, of course, which goes in beer. Brewer's yeast, of course. Flaxseed, the lactose. And one ingredient, which I'm not a huge fan of in my beer, but it does help a lot, and a lot of mothers sought this out anyways, is fenugreek. It kind of imparts a celery vegetal taste. Um, so I created a slurry from these little capsules, only 16 of them. And yeah, it's supposed to help a lot, which is great, but I'm going to add some maple syrup to kind of cover up the vegetal bittering taste. Well, and I was going to say, fenugreek is used a lot, actually, to make sort of fake maple flavor. So, yeah, and yeah, if you depending upon what part of it you get and how fresh it is and everything else, it can go vegetal. But it's also, if you treat it right, it actually does come up with a maple flavor as well, which is sort of odd and interesting. Yeah. Were these inspired by the cookies that you'd had previously? Partially, yes. So my friend actually just put chocolate chips in the cookies, which I thought would have been great, too. But I thought that the fig um, would be a little bit 
healthier. Fig wine is a thing. So, and you said earlier that you kept this at low alcohol levels. Correct. Because, you know, and you talked to your doctor about this. One, I have to ask, how's that conversation go when you go, hey, doc, I want to make a beer? Um, He kind of giggled at first. He's like, really? You make beer? I'm like, yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> it's fun and delicious. So he's just like, all right, well, I mean, what are you, what are you thinking? And I told him all about the recipe and he said, you know, everything in moderation. My doctor's pretty chill anyways. So he said, yeah, as long as it's under 3%, have one beer three hours before you're ready to feed or pump and you should be fine. And there's also these little strips that you can buy and test the milk to see if there's any traces of alcohol in your milk. So that's helpful as well. Having it as more sessionable beer is a good idea anyway, because, well, I don't think you're going to be wanting wanting to pound double IPAs when you have a newborn. <laughs> no, I'm a little more responsible than that. And you said the, the base of the beer itself was a, a porter, but you kind of turned it into sort of a, a milk porter, effectively, with the lactose. Can you walk through what the actual recipe bill looked like? Sure. Yep. So it's based on a three-and-a-half-gallon batch. 60-minute uh, boil um, on stove top since it is such a small batch of beer. We have two pounds of Maris Otter, eight ounces of oats, 6.4 ounces chocolate malts, four ounces of uh, Crystal 60L, and 3.2 uh, roasted barley. And then for the hops, we have at 60 minutes, 0.3 ounces of Northern Brewer, 30 minutes, Point two Northern Brewer and Flame Out. We have Buggles at half an ounce. So it sounds like you were going for a very sort of Englishy hop approach. Yes. And then you said mash. Is this like brew in a bag or? Yeah, yep, just brew in a bag. I just took a huge cheesecloth and made my own makeshift bag and put every all the grain in there. And then I had a smaller hop bag and I put all of the adjuncts like the flaxseed and the. Um, still cut oats in there and mash at the same time. And then to get the other flavors in there, the fenugreek and, and the figs and all that, how did you treat those? The fenugreek, I created a slurry with a half a cup of filtered water and I put that in um, the primary. And I also put the, put I think 10, I cut up 10 figs in um, the primary as well. Any particular reason to focus on having like the fenugreek in the primary as opposed to like throwing it in the boil? Was there like concerns about losing some essential component? Yeah, I was I was concerned about the losing the effect and also I was concerned about the boil creating more of a vegetal taste instead of the maple. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure how the heat was gonna react with that. And then the figs you just wanted to get that full figgy flavor and get all the good sugars out without necessarily heating them up. Did you do anything to sanitize the figs or freeze them or anything like that? No, they were pretty dried out, so I think they were fine. Well, we'll see if it creates any sort of funk in the next few weeks. (laughs) Suddenly we go from booby beer to funky booby beer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, hey, maybe maybe you'll be getting your uh, child off to a good start in the sour ale category. I sure hope so. And what yeast did you use to ferment? Uh, We used the Yorkshire Square... Ale yeast WLP037. I actually used two smack packs. Um, they weren't dated as fresh as I had wanted, so I wanted to make sure they had backup. And then just permit like a nice cool temperature somewhere off in the corner and let it go for what, two, three weeks? Yep, two weeks at about 68 degrees. 
And then off into keg, since you talked about having a keg writer? Yep, yep. We kegged uh, about three days ago, turned it up to 30 PSI, shook it around a bit, and I tried it yesterday, and it was nice and nice and carbonated. Well, so if you tried it, what flavors did you get out of it? I mean, I know you said, obviously, you had some vegetal from the Greek, but what about the rest of the beer? Um, because it's a porter, it did have a slightly roasted character and coffee notes from the chocolate malt that came out in the front and then kind of went into like a mild floral yet grassy happy bitterness and thinking that's from the fuggles mm-hmm. that came out. A smooth milkshake like sweetness from the lactose which was nice and then yeah the fenugreek kind of kicked in with an obvious celery and vegetable flavor and I think that boosted the bitterness mm-hmm. of the hops a bit. So just to my little sampling glass I added about a teaspoon of maple syrup and that completely just covered it up and it was a delicious cookie beer after that and then for the aftertaste i really got the the dark fruit from the fig now when you go to figure out how to deal with the fenugreek you said you're going to add maple syrup and then what i assume keep the keg cold so it doesn't try and ferment out again yeah and i would assume if you're going to go into bottles and want to do the same thing instead of doing maple syrup you know, you could get yourself a nice high quality maple extract and do that and effectively be doubling up the fenugreek for sure well, okay, so that's that's the booby beer. Legal disclaimer. Please, before drinking any booby beer for purposes of lactation or creating your own lactation beer, please consult your medical professional and <laughs> don't sue us. <laughs> please. So that's this iteration. I assume three and a half gallons isn't going to last you for the whole time that, that you're going to want to have that those impacts. So where else are you going to go? I know earlier you talked about brown rice and whatnot. Do you have an idea for that second beer to follow this with? Um, I'm thinking since we're getting into the summer and warm season, I'm going to introduce the apricot and the unripe papaya. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a food dehydrator, so I'm going to try that route um, and put that in, in the beer and then probably talk to you about adding the brown rice. Hmm. what kind of beer I should make. I was thinking a wheat beer, but mm-hmm. no. What do you think? You know me. I I always run home to Mama. And in my case, Mama is Cezanne. <laughs> and I could see you using you know, apricots and brown rice and whatnot to make a very light-bodied uh, Cezanne for the summer. You know, something kind of table strength. Okay, yeah. Uh, and that would be pretty straightforward. I mean, I, I would probably do... You could even incorporate some oats in there as well. So, you know, do like Pilsner, some oats, uh, some brown rice. And then hit that with like 3711 so you retain some body while keeping the, the gravity low. Mm-hmm. And then go and add some, you know, basically, you know, your Zots, your Magnum, or, you know, like a steering Goldings. And then hit that with uh, the apricots and the papaya in uh, secondary or late primary and allow those to soak through and then take that off and go. I like it. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard a live recipe formulation 101 from Drew. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and yes, there there are other things that you could do. Obviously, wheat beer would be appropriate. You know, something that you'd really want to kind of pop that fruit character. But it does get to be challenging with trying to keep the alcohol level low. Now, this one you said was three something, right? 2.5. Two, oh, 2.5, even lower than I thought. And I mean, I'm assuming is that like the highest strength that you'd want to go during this period of time? I think three. Three is the highest Okay. This also begs the question of what's what's going to be the first non-mom beer that you're going to make? Do you have that already in mind? Well, I already made that. I made a Brett IPA and dry hopped it with eight ounces of whole Cascade, and it is amazing. So <laughs> I'm going to take... You're cheating. I know. <laughs> it came out to like 7.8. It's just fabulous. Um, so I'm going to take one day off 
from feeding Lady Peanut, future Lady Peanut, that's, that's what we call her, <laughs> and um, we're just going to give her formula, so poor thing. That way mom can have, uh, have her first real beer in a while. Exactly, pumping and dumping. Uh, and by the way, uh, for the listeners, knowing Tiffany, I know that that was a, a big consideration that you know, I remember you were like, uh because you, you've you've been you've been a great explorer of other beers in the past. Yes. <laughs> Tiff, before we uh, leave this discussion of mother's beer, do you have uh, any other tips or tricks or ideas or things that you want to explore or things that you want to encourage people to explore about this concept? Um, I just encourage people to do lots of research online and talk with their their doctor about the possibilities. Um, there is some. You know, people out there that say absolutely no drinking, absolutely no nitrates, absolutely no nothing this. But if you think about it, like our parents didn't know about all the things that we know now because of the Internet. And we turned out just fine. So just consult your doctor and trust your instincts on what you should have and what you shouldn't have while you're pregnant and um, breastfeeding. Well, I think it really does come down to moderation in all things. Right. I of course I've totally forgot to ask the question, but does Benno get to have any of the mother's beer? Yes, he does, and he's quite excited about it actually. <laughs> he's hoping that he doesn't start lactating, but if he does, well, <laughs> it, it, it will happen. <laughs> and if it does, then you know suddenly Benno can become a viral sensation. Exactly. <laughs> Very helpful husband. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Tiffany, thank you for uh, sharing this idea. I mean, heck, thanks for coming up with the idea and yeah. sort of flipping the usual parental beer story on its head. Totally. <laughs> thank you, everybody. That was Tiffany Ashrafi, my good friend from the Maltos Falcons, with her uh, plan for her mother's beer. Uh, you know, just uh, something slightly different to brew when you're thinking about brewing for kids. And we'll be right back with another segment. Thank you very much. Yeah. So now it's time for us to have the other half of this discussion. Uh, obviously, we just talked with my good friend Tiff about a mother's beer, but a mother's beer of a different sort. But that doesn't help all the dads out there. And we know that next month is Father's Day. So what do we do for the fathers? Uh, get them a Bud Light. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's only if you don't like your father. Oh, right. Sorry. So here's... The thing is that normally what you see is this, this discussion will happen online on a forum. Somebody will say, hey, you know, I, I want to brew a beer that will last until my kid is old enough to drink. And then that way I can have a beer with my kid that I brewed for them. It is a completely wonderful idea and completely terrifyingly hard to pull off because there's not really a lot of room for a retry there. You know, you're not going to get to have the chances to do that many times. And, and <laughs> you've, you've got to do everything exactly right to have any chance of this lasting, you know, so it is a real challenge. So now my usual answer to this, and uh, keep in mind, I'm not a father except for to, you know, children of a furry nature. I'm, I'm, I'm like your surrogate father, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you're, you're my backup dad. Okay. But – if my usual answer to this query when I see it is, well, I probably wouldn't necessarily go make a beer if you really, really have to have that assurance that it's going to be available, I would go make a mead. I think mead is much easier to get to age out to that period of time. And we'll talk about mead on a future episode, but we're talking about beer because we're beer people. And dang it, this is a challenge. 
<laughs> it is indeed. Now, Denny, I know that I'm not a father. You're a father, but you never got the chance to brew. <laughs> no, uh, by the time I started brewing, my son was uh, already grown up and moved away. Uh, I thought about, you know, maybe brewing something for my grandkids, but I want to make sure that I'm around to drink it. So uh, <laughs> I didn't do that either. In other words, Denny has taken laziness to new heights. That's right. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's a great excuse for all kinds of things. Yeah. But what we are going to talk about, and like I said, I haven't brewed this for a kid, but I have the closest thing that I can have to a kid, which is a house and a mortgage. So a couple years back, I decided when I actually signed for the house I'm currently living in, the eponymous Casa Verde, I decided, well, you know what? I'm going to be paying a mortgage on this place for 30 some odd years. I want to have a beer that I can crack on the day I sign over that last check. I'll be 60 something or other when that happens, but whatever, it'll be fine. I've sat down to try and think about, okay, what do I need to do in order to get a beer to go out that far? And what I came up with was a beer I'm calling my mortgage killer, but this would work very well for your child and would actually probably age perfectly well for, you know, to get up to that 18 age. You know, if you're sort of enlightened about drinking or 21, if you want to follow the the letter of the law. Basically, what I settled on was an English barley wine. And the reason why I settled on English barley wine is you look at some of the beers that are out there that do sort of age for that period of time. And you've got things like uh, Thomas Hardy's, J.W. Lee's, you know, all these sort of big Swedish English barley wines or old ales. So this kind of straddles the line. It's not really an old ale because it's way too big. I kind of consider this to be a homebrewer's old ale. <laughs> Yeah, right. So why don't you start like walking us through the recipe and I'll start picking it apart as you do. Good. It's not going to take very long to walk through the recipe. No, it's not. It's uh, pretty straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it, it falls into the line of, you know, sort of my brewing on the ones type of idea uh, or really just in the whole simplicity movement that we're trying to you know, encourage people to think about. It is for an 11 gallon batch. Because I wanted to have plenty of this to be able to make through 30 years because I wanted to open one of these per year. Mm -hmm. So I made an 11-gallon batch. It has a 120-minute boil because I wanted to make sure I got a lot of concentration because I'm going to be doing a lot of malt and you know having to pull a lot of work for this in order to actually get this up here. The original gravity is a very, very tiny 1.145. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. This is right up there with the strongest beer I've ever made. All of them seem to come in around 1140 to 1150. Now, some of us have friends like Fred Bonjour, who I hope to have on the podcast at some point, who is famous for making beers that I think he would think that 1140 was well, a good starting place. Yeah, right. That's that's like Fred's session beer. Yeah. But in this case, this is my Mondo Massive Must Age Forever beer. So original gravity of 1145, uh, IBUs, shockingly, 50. You know, and, and let can we stop and talk about that for a second? Sure. All right, second's over. <laughs> generally, when people talk about making beers to age, they generally are really, really hoppy beers on the theory that uh, the hops help preserve the beers. Obviously, 50 IBUs is not like that. Obviously, you, you haven't waited 30 years to drink this beer yet either, so you don't have an exact answer to this question. But I, I guess it's kind of like a two-parter. Do you think that 50 IBUs is enough to have that preservative effect? And do you think that that preservative effect is really a thing at all? 50 IBUs only seems small in comparison to that original gravity because, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we're used to thinking, okay, well, you got to be up somewhere around you know, one-to-one -one or something like that, if you're really wanting to, you know, make something that will push. So we tend to think of 
you know, oh, you've got to have these massive hops in here. But uh, remember, these are inspired. This beer is very much inspired by an English style of beer. And like you go and you look at like Thomas Hardy's, for instance, and all the stuff I've ever been able to see on Thomas Hardy's, which comes in, you know, it comes in, I think, about 11 something. Right. They have roughly 40 IBUs in that beer, 40 to 50. Okay. Well, geez, that's... Uh... This puts it in about the same category, even though it's slightly stronger. I think Hardy starts with an, an original gravity that would be somewhere closer to, like, 1120. Right. It's in the same neck of the woods. It just, to our American perspectives of how we normally hop things, seems like, isn't that a, a wee bit small? <laughs> well, again, it's because, you know, you always hear about how if you're going to make a beer for aging, it has to have a lot of hops in it. Because of their preservative quality. So basically what, what the message I'm getting from this is, is that number one, maybe hops don't have the preservative quality that we thought they did, or that number two, it doesn't take as much as we thought that it did to get that preservative quality from them. Huh? Well, but remember, I mean, the preservative effect of hops is really usually antimicrobial. Right. Uh, so we, it's not antioxidation, which is actually my big worry for this beer over time. Yeah, exactly. I think enough hops to get that antimicrobial effect is just fine. I, I don't see the point in really pushing it so much, and particularly because I also want this beer to still be relatively drinkable young. Right. So so that basically we're coming down to enough is enough, and you don't need to like go wild with it. Yeah, and besides, in about five years, you know, in the time since I brewed that, it's been... Uh, seven years now, almost seven years. Uh, in the time since I brewed that beer, the hops have already receded down. But I mean, you go and you stop and you think about, you know, parties or Elise or something like that, and they do the same thing. They're they're very malt focused, which is what this beer is, which I know is unusual for a West Coast American brewer. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, my my old Stoner barley wine comes out to be about oh maybe like eleven fifteen, eleven twenty, and calculates to one hundred and thirty IBUs. So this is definitely a very different beer than what I make. Well, and then the SRM is seventeen point seven, which is actually surprisingly dark given what the grain bill is, because the grain bill is. 60 pounds of Maris Otter and one pound of roasted barley. Right. And that's very much based off of Hardy's and uh, Lee's. You know, you see those very simple barley wine type recipes like that. In fact, I mean, the easiest barley wine in the entire universe that you could do is basically a 55 pound sack of Maris Otter and let it go. Right. Well, and you know what? That really that really mimics what I do for uh, Scotch ales too, which are golden promise with just a little tiny touch of roasted barley in there. Yep. I mean, both your uh, barley wine recipe and the Scotch ale are all about the malt, so why muddle it up? Well, and then the one nod that I did make to the sort of antioxidant effect is the roast bar because there is a lot of at least old timey supposition that these high roasted malts have an antioxidant effect. Speaking of which, too bad Brutan wasn't around when you made this, huh? I know. I, I was thinking about that as we were getting ready to do this. <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been an interesting experiment. Uh, the longest lived Brutan experiment ever. Yeah, right. But the roasted barley is there also not only to give color but and some character, but also to give some of that antioxidant effect. Simple mash, 60 minutes, single infusion, 150 degrees. You could do 153, 154 area, but with that much malt in there, I'm worried about actually sh uh, sugary sweetness and not fermenting out, particularly if I'm going to try and you know, keep this beer around for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Hops are very much in sort of my standard profile. Two and a half ounces of Magnum pellets, 
12% alpha acid for 60 minutes, two ounces of Challenger pellets at 7.8% alpha acid for 10 minutes, and Challenger is one of my favorite British hops. And then finally, to close it out, two ounces of EKG at zero minutes. And that's the hop bill. It is a classical English hop bill, well, except for the Magnum, but whatever, you're not going to tell the Magnum's there anyway. <laughs> and, and my guess is that after 30 years, you won't know that those uh, flame-out EKGs are there either. I'd be heartily surprised. You can barely get them now. The big thing is, you notice that, I mean, this is an 11-gallon batch. We're getting to 50 IBUs, but this is still six and a half ounces of hops. It's a fair amount of hops in here, but the gravity is really doing a number on the isomerization. Mm-hmm. And then just to prevent any sort of additional issues with isomerization in the kettle, a good portion of the gravity actually comes from the final ingredient, which is seven pounds of sugar added during primary fermentation. Now, do you add that all at once or do you do it in steps? If I remember correctly, I did this in three three partitions. Mm-hmm. So just to, you know, I think it was like, yeah, three pounds, two pounds, two pounds, just to you know, kind of let the poison come up, let it kind of slow down, get some more sugar, let it keep going. And I did that because you know, I wanted to make sure that this would have a chance to really dry out. Beer was fermented with what I consider to be one of the most reliable fermenters out there for these kinds of beers, which is WLP05 British Ale. Massive cake of British Ale. Yeah, I was going to – did you make a starter or did you make another beer first and pitch it on that? I made another starter called a 10-gallon batch of mild. Yeah, right. That's <laughs> what I would have guessed. <laughs> so I, I made a 10-gallon batch of my CDJK Dark Mild and used the yeast from there to power this thing because I don't think trying to go from a starter into this is going to do you any good. <laughs> well – it, I mean, it'll do something, but it won't make the beer that you intend to make for sure. That's true. So fermented that out. It took about, I don't know, I think it was three months, three, four months in the primary before I racked it over into kegs. And mm-hmm. it's, I brought one keg actually to a party about a year and a half later and it went night, night. So I'm actually down <laughs> beer, but the other part, uh, the other part is still saying in a keg. And it's still in my chest freezer, and it was, oddly enough, one of my fully purged kegs. It's still tasting very, very good, and I still take a nip off of it every year in October when I signed the original papers. So we'll we'll see how it does. But the real thing about this is I want people to realize those couple of tips. When you're going big on a beer like this, keep as much of it as you can simple because you're going to gain complexity just from the sheer quantity. So what kind of final gravity did you end up with on this? This one actually ended up about 1025. Wow, that's lower than I would have guessed. Um, And for those of you who haven't made a beer of this strength before, that is a perfectly fine finishing gravity. Don't drive yourself crazy trying to get it down to like 10.008 or something like that. Uh, a, a big beer like this does not need that low of final gravity. So anyway, I would say, you know, tackle a special project beer like this because it doesn't have to be for 30 years. It can totally be for 18 years for your son or daughter so that they can have a, a nice beer with you when they're old enough to vote. I would say going forward, if I were to redo this one, I probably will just because why not? Because it's a really tasty beer. Right. If I were going to try and go for something that was a younger drinker, I probably would up the hops a little bit. But I would also think another interesting thing to add to it would actually be some oak to add some tannins. And mm-hmm. we see this with some of the JW Lees and, and Hardy varieties as well, where they're doing different oak varieties of the beers, certainly traditional, 
But I didn't do that for this one because I just wanted to kind of have like a very clean flavor going forward. I'm kind of surprised you didn't bottle this since it's uh, intended to stick around for a long time. Well, yeah, but that came about because of laziness. <laughs> well, I understand that. But again, you know, this this kind of special project beer is one of the few things that uh, that I do bottle. I'm still intending on actually going and beer gunning uh, some of this in the bottle so I can get the keg back at some point. Yeah, right. You already have it in a keg and everything. But for somebody who's going to make something like this, once again, bottle conditioning could be a good thing for a beer like this in terms of helping to scavenge some of the oxygen from it, too. And this would be the kind of beer where if you really wanted to go out, you could even wax the cap to, uh, to help with that a little bit more, huh? Yeah, but, you know, I did a lot of reading when I was first doing this project, and I was thinking about the whole bottling aspect, and I thought, oh, you know, I could wax dip the caps, and, you know, that will help. Turns out, at least from all the research I've been able to read, the wax does exactly nothing for helping prevent oxidation and growth. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me too much. I would think that it might help a bit, but not not make a world of difference. Um, At any rate, uh, you know, for a beer you're going to age 30 years – Trying to exclude oxygen is a really big deal that you want to try and do as much as possible, huh? Yeah. Well, and I would also argue that, I mean, take as many steps as you can to reduce the amount of oxygen. So even if you're bottle conditioning these in, you know, with yeast, mm-hmm. I would still actually purge the bottles with CO2. That certainly couldn't hurt. Yeah. And I, I would argue that the most important thing that you could do other than sanitation and some basic oxidation pre- prevention steps would be to keep the bottles actually cold. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So very much. So that, that could be a, a big help. Well, Denny, what would you, uh, any other thoughts that what you might do differently if you were trying to do this? Or, I mean, what would you do if you were trying to do a beer that would go for 30 years or 18? <laughs> yeah. 18, 18 is a lot different than 30. Um, I, you know, I would, the only thing I would do different, I mean, you know, process wise, it's fine. The only thing I would do different would be just uh, jack the recipe around a little bit more to my taste preferences. Other than that, this is a, this is to your personal taste and I'm sure it's going to be delicious. Uh, I, I do want to warn people that if you actually do manage to age a beer for 30 years, don't expect it to taste anything like what it started out like. I think I've had Sammy Claus, I've had Bigfoot, I've had Anchor Our Christmas Ale, or Our Special Ale, sorry. And I've had a bunch of different beers that are this old. I'm still trying to find a bottle of Thomas Hardy's from 1974 because that's my birth year. <laughs> I uh, I once had the, the opportunity to try a Ballantine Burton Ale that was 74 years old. Yeah, that's that's the infamous one. Yeah. And I won't lie, that did actually uh, serve as part inspiration for this. Uh, if you don't know the history of Valentine's Burton Ale, guess what? I think that's a perfectly good topic for another show. Yeah, right. I, I agree. But uh, when, you know, when I, I had a chance to try that, it kind of tasted a little bit like watered down scotch and nothing at all like beer. If you if you manage to age this beer for 30 years, look at it as a learning experience and a rare treat, uh, no matter what it ends up like. If nothing else, you have made something unique, and you get to enjoy something unique. So go for it. Try a special project beer, huh? That's yeah, the absolutely. And like I said, it, it doesn't have to be that hard, but I will say the big tips out of here are the same ones I get for every high-gravity brew, which are plenty of oxygen, big yeast cake. Uh, preferably, preferably from 
another batch of beer. Give it time. And once you have it bottled or kegged or whatever, you know, not only be careful about your auction pickup, but keep it cold. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And make that wort uh, with maximum fermentability in mind, but not too much, right? Don't overdo it. Don't start putting Amelie's powder in there trying to get down to 1010. No, God, no. Yeah. It, I mean, one of the best beers I've ever had in my life was from my friend Johnny Lieberman, who no longer brews, but he made a beer called the Black Wine. He made several variants of it, and one of the variants started up about the same gravity, actually a little bit higher, I think 1150, and it ended at 1045, 1050 range. You know what? It tasted fantastic and had a yeah. ton of boost to it. So your original gravities or your final gravities change when you're dealing with these sorts of beers. Right, exactly. All right. So get out there and brew for your kids, folks. You can do it. You can do it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this trip down, well, parents' beers, both for the moms <laughs> and the dads, and nominally for the kids. Let's face it, it's for the mom and the dads. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Facebook, on Reddit, on Slack, on just about every homebrew forum out there known to mankind and some only known to alien life forms. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes. Click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. So until next time, remember to always brew wacky or brew experimentally and the brew is out there somewhere.